This is the Clinical Pharmacology Podcast with Nathan Tusher, where I discuss clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics topics from the perspective of drug development scientists. Today's episode is going to be a discussion about model selection and diagnostics. I've received requests from several people, including Harshita and Arash, to discuss techniques for model evaluation and selection. I have included several image files in the show notes that I'll be referencing in this episode. I recommend that you download those images and have them handy when listening or review them after the episode. My friend and colleague Mark Laverne is fond of saying that a model is simply a mathematical representation of what we observe. I love that description because it gets to the essence of what we're trying to accomplish as pharmacometricians and clinical pharmacologists. We are looking for a mathematical explanation of the change in drug concentration or drug response that we observe in animals or humans. And if we can build a reasonable mathematical model that enables us to test hypotheses, make predictions, and provide projections of future results. It is the observation that is the most important in modeling, not the mathematical expression. Always remember that you should focus on the observations first when modeling. I'll divide this episode into four sections. First, how to evaluate predicted values. Second, how to evaluate residuals. Third, approaches to model selection. And then I'll finish with a summary that puts it all together. I'll focus on models that predict continuous endpoints like drug concentrations, biomarkers, or other continuous variables. I'll leave a discussion for diagnostic plots for binary, categorical, and survival models for a separate podcast sometime in the future. All right, now is a good time to pause the episode and download those image files. As a reminder, if you visit my website at tushersolutions.com and sign up for the newsletter, I'll send the show notes to your email each time a new podcast is released. I don't sell your email address and I don't pester you with ads. I just send the links from the show notes the morning that each episode is released. The most important thing in modeling is the observed data. Your model should reflect the observed data. If it doesn't, either the model is wrong or your implementation of the model is wrong. So for this first discussion, let's take a a simple single subject or naive pooled model. In these models, there's a single prediction for each observation. The first plot you should create is observed versus predicted with the observed data on the y-axis and the predicted data on the x-axis. An example of such a plot is included as figure one in the show notes. The first question is why put predictions on the x-axis and observations on the y-axis? We do that to evaluate how well the predictions match the observations. Our predictions come from our model and we want our model to match the observations. So we put the thing that we have some control over, the predictions on the x-axis, and the thing we have no control over, the observed data, on the y-axis. A model with perfect predictions would have the exact same value for the predictions and the observations. Thus, the line of unity, where y equals x, is considered the best possible outcome for this diagnostic plot. This will be a theme in diagnostic plots, finding the best possible outcome and plotting it. Nearly all plots will have a reference line or a point that represents the best possible outcome for each diagnostic plot. Understand that and you'll be able to use the plots effectively. Each data point represents a pair of the predicted value and the observed value. 
if most of those values lie along the line of unity, then our model has achieved something beneficial. We are seeing good agreement between the predictions and observations for our model. If, however, the data points deviate from the line of unity, then our model is not doing so well. In general, if the cluster of data points is above the line of unity, it means that our model underpredicts. And if the cluster of data points is below the line of unity, it means that the model overpredicts. It is possible that the model can both under and overpredict in different regions. To assess the trend in the data points, it's recommended to use a regression line to identify the trend. For most analyses, a low S line, which is a localized smoothing function for XY plots, is a great solution. Draw a low S line through your data points, and then identify how well that trend line matches the line of unity on the plot. Figure one is a plot of observed versus predicted using a two compartment model for the fit. As you can see, the trend is along the line of unity. Although the data points are not exactly along the line of unity, they are balanced on both sides. The low S line is in agreement with the line of unity. Figure two is a plot of the same observed data versus predictions using a one compartment model. As you can see, the trend in the data does not follow the line of unity. There is under prediction at low concentrations and some over prediction in the middle and then a little bit of under prediction at the high concentrations. The low S trend line crosses the line of unity multiple times and does not have the same general shape. Figure two shows us that the model used to describe these observations doesn't do a very good job. I would generally say this means that the structural model is incorrect, meaning the mathematical structure of the one compartment model does not accurately describe the data. So I need a different structural model. In this case, I need to test a multi-compartment model, like a two-compartment model, to see if the fit is improved. In my opinion, these plots mostly provide information about the quality of the structural model used in the analysis. The plot can tell you if you have the right compartment structure or if you have a linear e or an Emacs PD model. The plot is not the only plot that can help tell you this, but it's a good plot. If this plot doesn't look good, don't use the model. Now let's move on to a population model where you have two different predicted values. These are most often used in the context of population PK models, but can also be used for PKPD models. For each observed value, you get two different predictions, which are the individual and the population prediction. The individual prediction uses the individual subject's PK parameters and dose administration schedule to estimate the concentration. In modeling terms, that means this includes both the typical values or thetas and the subject-specific eta parameters. The population prediction uses the typical values for the PK parameters and the individual subject dose administration schedule to estimate the concentration. In modeling terms, that means the ADAs are set to zero for all subjects for the population predictions. An example of these two plots are shown in figure three. The most important thing is that the individual predictions will nearly always look good. If the individual predictions look bad, you have a really big problem with your model. Either the structure's not right or the execution of the model didn't occur properly. But if the individual predictions look good, you may still have a poor model. 
don't evaluate individual predictions versus observed data to assess goodness of fit. The population predictions versus observed data can be used to evaluate the quality of the structural model, just like as I described for the single subject or naive pooled data. This data should have a spread about the line of unity because the individual etas are ignored. But the data should be evenly dispersed on either side of the line of unity in a model that shows good fit. The plot of population predictions versus observed can also be used when evaluating covariate addition. Covariates are normally introduced as theta parameters into a model. That means that they are included in the estimation of the population prediction. Thus, as you add covariates to the model that describe the between subject differences and concentrations, you should see the population predictions get closer to the line of unity with less spread. It will never look as good as the individual predictions versus observations, but it should improve model to model. One last item is that the population prediction versus observed plot can be misleading for population PKPD models. When creating PKPD models in non-MEM, you often include the response variable equations in the error block instead of in the differential equations. With those models, I believe that the population predictions are not entirely accurate, although I fully don't understand the reason why. I think it's based on how non-MEM handles the error block for population predictions. If you know why this happens, please send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com. But the take-home message is the population prediction versus observed plots for some PKPD models can give the impression of a poor model when in fact the model fits the data quite well. Let's move on to residual plots. Residuals are the difference between the individual predicted value and the observed value. If the prediction is greater than the observation, you will have a negative residual. Alternatively, if the prediction is less than the observation, you'll have a positive residual. You should have a residual for each data point. In all models, we make an assumption that the residuals in the model will have a mean of zero and a standard deviation that we estimate as a parameter. So if you have a single subject fit, you should be able to take all the residual values and calculate the mean, and it should be very close to zero. Similarly, with a population fit, the mean of all the residuals across all the subjects should be close to zero. I like to think of this assumption as the rule that says our prediction should go through, quote, the middle of the data. If you go through the middle of the data, half the observed data will be above the prediction line and half the observed data will be below the prediction line. This assumption is always also very easy to test with graphical plots, meaning is the trend in the residuals at zero? If no, then the model has violated an assumption of the model and is likely not a valid representation of the observed data. Before we talk about specific plots, I want to briefly mention different types of residuals. First, we have the raw residuals, which is calculated as the observed value minus the predicted value. We also have weighted residuals. These residuals are calculated by dividing the raw residual by some mean value, also called the weight. The method of determining the weight is beyond this podcast, but the resulting weighted residual is important. The weighted residuals have numeric values from negative infinity to positive infinity, and the mean is still zero, but the weighted residual values represent approximate standard deviations from the mean value. 
So a weighted residual of two is about two standard deviations from the mean. And a value of minus 10 is 10 standard deviations from the mean. Again, negative values are over predictions, positive values are under predictions. The weighted residuals should be plotted against any independent variables in the model and against the population predictions. So in most PK models, this means you would plot the weighted residuals on the y-axis against time, time after dose, and prediction on the x-axis. Other models that use drug concentrations as drivers for pharmacodynamic effects may want to plot the drug concentration on the x-axis also. For our initial discussion, let's talk about weighted residuals versus time after dose. This plot is very useful in pharmacokinetic models when you have a long dosing history over months or even years. Confining the x-axis to include only the dosing interval permits easier interpretation of the data. In figure four, you will see this plot on the top right panel. The individual data points are the weighted residuals on the y-axis and the observed time after dose on the x-axis. Because we know that the mean of all residuals should be zero, a horizontal line at y equals zero is considered the best possible outcome for this diagnostic plot. To identify the trend in the data, you should create a low S regression line for the plot. Now you're ready to evaluate the plot and learn where your model works and where it doesn't. First, you want to observe the low S trend line. Is it close to zero across the entire range of time after dose? When it deviates, where does it deviate and how much? After oral administration, you may see the trend line start above the zero line at dose time, then it moves below the zero line near Tmax, and then it trends back above the zero line at the end of the dosing interval. If the shifts are dramatic, you may have the wrong structural model. If the shifts are more subtle, you may simply be seeing an inadequate absorption model that underpredicts early, overpredicts around Tmax, and then underpredicts again at the end of the interval. Understanding where your residuals don't have alignment with the assumption of a mean equals zero gives you insight into what part of the model you may want to evaluate further. Poor residuals in the absorption phase can guide you to try different absorption models if you have enough data in that time period. Poor residuals in the terminal phase may suggest a biased estimate of clearance and or an incorrect structural model. Next, you want to look at the values of the weighted residuals. Going back to the assumption, the residuals are assumed to be normally distributed with a mean of zero. In a normal distribution, 95% of the residuals should be within plus or minus two standard deviations of the mean. And 99.9% .9 of the residuals should be within plus or minus three standard deviations. I tend to look at any weighted residuals that are more than five standard deviations from the mean. I identify those points, I look at the individual profile, and try to understand why those values are so different from the modeled predictions. Many times, large residuals can reveal inconsistencies in the data. For example, a sample time is recorded as prior to the next dose but the concentration is very large, suggesting that maybe the sample was taken after the dose was administered. Or alternatively, the sample time is recorded as after the next dose, but the concentration is very small, suggesting that maybe the sample was taken prior to dose administration. 
Or maybe this plasma sample concentration was very high and it is marked as hemolyzed and you know that the drug sequesters in blood cells, meaning that the measured concentration in the hemolyzed sample does not reflect just the plasma levels, but plasma and blood levels. If you have many samples that have large standard deviations, it might suggest that your structural model may be insufficient to describe the PK of some of your subjects. Maybe you're missing a major covariate. For example, let's say you had a very large food effect and you had not yet included that during base model development. You could see very large residuals because the model is trying to find the middle and sees very different concentration levels for individuals that are fed and fasted. So my advice is to learn from the residual plots and identify where your model may have misalignment and then make adjustments between your model so you get better predictions. The plot of weighted residuals versus time can be interpreted similarly to time after dose. However, you can use this to also identify time-dependent pharmacokinetic phenomenon. For example, let's say you have modeled linear clearance and you see your residuals deviating from the zero line at later time points in the plot. This may suggest that clearance is changing over time and you may need to introduce some nonlinearity such as autoinduction, autoinhibition, or even Michaelis-Menten kinetics. The plot of weighted residuals versus population prediction can help you identify where your model might be failing to represent the observed data. Again, the perfect plot would have a trend line along y equals zero. This plot will help you see if there are deviations at low predicted concentrations or at high predicted concentrations. Identifying where you have discrepancies, again, can help you focus on the right portion of the model in your troubleshooting. One final note about diagnostic plots. Most diagnostic plots use the linear scale. However, you can also use the logarithmic scale. You should only use the logarithmic scale when dealing with concentration measurements. Don't use logarithmic scale on time or on residuals. And when you transform concentrations to the logarithmic scale, you must transform all concentrations to the logarithmic scale. So on an observed versus predicted plots, both the X and Y axes should be log transformed. On weighted residuals versus predictions, only the X axis with prediction should be log transformed. The log transform plots expand the small values and compress the large values. These plots give the same space to values between 0.1 and 1 that they do to values between 1 and 1,000. Linear plots, on the other hand, tend to expand large values and compress small values. I use log transform plots if I'm concerned about the model fit for small concentrations. I use them only rarely, but on occasion they can be useful. But if your log transform plot looks good and your linear plot looks crummy, you don't have a good model. That means your model predicts small concentrations well, but does not predict large concentrations. And large concentrations are what often lead to adverse events or lack of efficacy. If the converse is true where your linear plot looks good, but your log transform plot looks poor, you may still have an adequate model, but it means you don't predict low concentrations this very well. This may be a of no consequence for your model, but you should be aware of it. I always discuss model selection after reviewing diagnostic plots. Model selection is not a process for selecting the single best model. 
Instead, model selection is an exercise in compromises. George Box, the British statistician, famously said in 1976 that, quote, all models are wrong. And that saying was expanded by him and some colleagues in 1978 to, quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful, close quote. All of our mathematical models have some level of inaccuracy. Our goal is to build a mathematical model that describes what we observed. And within that, we want to describe what we observed in a way that can help us with our development efforts. If we are working on a project related to optimal formulation development, we should choose a model that is very good at describing the observed concentrations during the absorption phase. However, if we're working on a project that requires minimum concentrations at steady state, we might want to focus more closely on clearance and volume parameter estimates and accuracy at the trough concentrations. What I'm trying to say is that model selection is and should be biased by our planned use for the model. Understanding how you may use the model can allow you to prioritize the information that you see in the diagnostics to help you decide on the best model for your intended purpose. I see three key components of model selection. They're all equally important and it's good to have the best of all three when you select a model. These three things are parameter estimates, diagnostic plots, and the objective function value. You want parameter estimates to be reasonable and explainable for your model. Are the parameters well estimated with low uncertainty? Are the parameter estimates similar to prior information that you have on the drug? Do the parameter estimates make biological sense with the observed data? Is there enough information in the observed data to accurately estimate all of the parameters? These questions are open-ended and you need to think about them and answer them honestly. If you can answer questions like these about your model estimated parameters with confidence, you might have a good model. The earlier discussions about diagnostic plots should let you know that they don't give a binary answer. These plots identify areas where your model can accurately predict the observed data and areas where your model fails. It's up to you to decide if the areas of failure adversely affect your ability to use the model for its intended purpose. Knowing these deficiencies in your model can strengthen your confidence that the model is good or bad for the intended purpose. Finally, the objective function value. This number is from the statistical analysis employed. In nearly all models, you're seeking to minimize the objective function value. Thus, lower numbers are better. If you're comparing non-nested models, you can derive the AIC or BIC values for comparison, with lower AIC or BIC values being indicative of the better model. Or if you have nested mixed effects models, you can use the log likelihood ratio test to compare models. Again, lower values represent better models. Or if you have linear models, you could simply perform an ANOVA and compare the models with, again, lower being better. When comparing two models, the lower objective function value means that the model does a better job of explaining the response variable. In most cases, you should choose it. But the objective function value always decreases when you add parameters. That's why AIC, BIC, and the log likelihood ratio test include penalties for adding parameters. So the new parameter has to give an improvement that is more than would be expected for just some random parameter. So model selection should include good parameter estimates, good diagnostic plots, 
and a lower objective function value. Sometimes you don't get all three. If that's the case, make sure you have confidence in your decision and perhaps the reason why you're ignoring one of those things. Here's a perfect example. Let's say you include allometric scaling with a fixed exponent of 0.75 for clearance and 1.0 for volume in your model. Now you want to compare that model to one that has estimated exponents for clearance and volume. So you add two parameters and your objective function value drops by 30 points, which is statistically significant. You may still choose to use the model with fixed allometric exponents because your intended purpose for the model is pediatric extrapolation. Or you may choose to use the estimated exponents if the model is intended for simulating the exact same patient population for a future clinical study. Thus, there isn't a single best model. There's just the best model for your intended purpose based on your interpretation of the results. Here's how I normally handle model selection for a population PK analysis. First, I select the optimal structural model for the data using the population predicted versus observed and versus conditional weighted residuals to help decide on the number of correct compartments. I try to include between subject variability on all parameters if possible. Second, I may refine key parts of the structure using stepwise model comparisons if needed. For example, I may compare first and zero order absorption input models. Third, I evaluate different residual error models after the structural model is defined. I only evaluate esoteric models like the M3 model for BLQ values if there are a lot of BLQ observations in the terminal phase. Fourth, I may refine the between subject variability parameters to achieve the most stable model for, for a stepwise covariate search. Fifth, I use stepwise forward addition followed by stepwise backward deletion for selection and addition of covariates. The final model after the backward deletion process is my final covariate model. And then the sixth step, I refine the final covariate model by reevaluating the between subject variability parameters and evaluating potential correlations between them. And number seven, the final step, I may refine covariate implementations depending on the future use of the model. For example, changing from estimated to fixed allometric exponents is one refinement that I often do. There are a few things I have not mentioned in the podcast thus far that include condition numbers, bootstrap, and visual predictive checks. I do not use these on a regular basis to evaluate every single model. First, I think condition number is overrated as a diagnostic. It is derived from the covariance step, which assumes a normal distribution of the parameter uncertainty. Thus, a large condition number could arise because the model is unstable, but it could also arise if the parameter uncertainty distributions are not normally distributed. Thus, because the reason for high value is twofold, I don't find it very useful as a diagnostic in most cases. A bootstrap is a non-parametric method of determining the parameter uncertainty distribution. On most reasonably sized models, it can take days or weeks to complete. And in my opinion, it has a lot of assumptions that are untested. If the covariance step works and gives good results, I don't think the bootstrap is necessary or even helpful. If the covariance step does not work, you could use a bootstrap to get an idea of the parameter uncertainty, but I would prefer the SIR method, which is much faster. 
but ultimately both the bootstrap and SIR give you an idea about the distribution of the parameter uncertainty. It doesn't tell you if the model is good or not. It just tells you how well parameters can be estimated. The visual predictive check is a simulation diagnostic that does give you an idea of the ability of your model to predict the data used in the estimation step. They are reasonably fast and can be completed in less time than the model estimation run in most cases. But I find these useful as confirmatory evidence that a model's good characteristics rather than a tool to diagnose where the model is not performing and how to fix it. If the VPC looks bad in the absorption phase, I guarantee that other diagnostic plots discussed earlier will also look pretty bad in the absorption phase. I like VPCs and I think they should be completed for all final models, but I don't see them as an excellent tool for diagnosing issues with a model. VPCs should be used to demonstrate that the selected model has reasonable predictive properties for your intended use. I covered a lot of information in today's podcast, and you may need to go back and re-listen to portions of this episode with diagnostic plots in front of you. I didn't learn about how to perform model selection by reading one manuscript or attending one conference lecture, and I don't expect you to learn everything about model selection from this podcast. But the advantage you have is that you can re-listen to this podcast over and over again as you review your model outputs. You can compare what you see with what I said to improve your skills in modeling. Maybe your next model analysis isn't for a few months. This episode will still be available and you can listen to it again. This is why I decided to start a podcast so that I could help more people with their pharmacometric activities. So in summary, let's go back to where we started. Our goal in any modeling activity is to develop a mathematical representation of what we observe. In modeling, the observed data is more important than the mathematical expression. Always remember that you should focus on the observations first when modeling. I describe diagnostic plots related to predicted values first, then I describe diagnostic plots with residuals and usually looking at weighted residuals. And then I spoke about the model selection process and using diagnostic plots, parameter estimates, and objective function values to choose models. And the model selection process should focus on your intended purpose for the model. If you can do these things, you too can model pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data. You can identify issues with models and you can understand a model's weakness. You can create mathematical models that then describe the world that we observe around us. So good luck on your next modeling project. And if you get stuck and need some assistance, don't hesitate to reach out to me for help. You can reach me on my website or through email, and I'll do my best to help point you in the right direction. For more information, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com or sign up for my newsletter at tushersolutions.com forward slash newsletter. The newsletter is a copy of the show notes sent to your email each time an episode is released. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Thank you. 